When it comes to behavioral finance, a few people stand out in terms of their contribution to helping us all understand why and how it works. The intersection between human behavior and quantitative investing can be difficult to understand for even the most sophisticated investors. Today, I want to share some really important insights from one of my favorite professors, who's also a practitioner of this discipline, namely Andrew Lowe of MIT Sloan School of Management and a director of MIT's Laboratory of Financial Engineering. Many people know Andrew as the father of the adaptive market hypothesis, and our conversation was wide-ranging, entertaining, and deeply insightful. So sit back and relax and enjoy these truly unique takeaways from my conversation with Professor Andrew Lowe. And if you would like to listen to the full conversation, and I hope you do, just go to toptradersunplugged.com forward slash RT18. That's where the conversation starts. Now, our conversation today will focus on a number of different topics within the managed futures industry and perhaps a few that will fall a little bit outside of this. And so to kick things off in a slightly different way, I want to come to you, Andrew, first and ask what you think of when I say Rabbi Mahoney, Rabbi Mahoney, Rabbi Mahoney, and I hope you know what I'm referring to <laughs> so that our listeners don't think that I'm completely lost it at this stage. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for bringing that up. That comes from uh, one of my stories that I've wrote about in my book, Adaptive Markets. It's an idea about thinking about financial markets more like a biological ecosystem rather than a physical system. As you may know, most economists suffer from this disease that I call physics envy. We wish we had three laws that explain 99% of all behavior the way the physicists do. And in fact, we have maybe 99 laws that explain only 3%. And so the idea behind adaptive markets is that we really have to think about these financial market dynamics as coming from human interactions. And trying to model those human interactions is really critical. So the Rabbi Mahoney story really has to do with the fact that I heard many years ago about a technique for getting parking in Harvard Square. It's a terrible, terrible challenge to drive a car into Harvard Square because there's never any parking. And so for, for years, I just decided not to do it. And uh, a friend of mine said, well, you know, if you use this following algorithm, before you go to Harvard Square, you utter the incantation, Rabbi Mahoney, Rabbi Mahoney, Rabbi Mahoney. At that point, you should be able to go to Harvard Square and get a parking. And the amazing thing is this algorithm actually works. Uh, <laughs> but the more interesting reason is why it works. Exactly. It, it works because it changes the way we behave. It changes our expectation for getting a space. Because now, once you utter the incantation, you must somehow in the part of your brain believe that you might be able to get a space and that changes the way you drive. It changes how you look for parking. And magically, you actually increase the chances of getting a space. So it, it really says that human behavior can actually change our reality. Sometimes, sometimes things need to be believed in to be seen. Yeah, no, absolutely. And do, do just our curiosity, I mean, do you think that belief always precedes action, so to speak, and possibility? Well, I think it's something that happens simultaneously in many cases. You know, our beliefs uh, have an impact on our behavior, but our behavior has an impact on reality, and that reality shapes our beliefs. 
So it's kind of a feedback loop that is happening and updating all the time. And unless we're aware of that, it's very easy for us to get misled by various kinds of market events and ultimately end up down a rabbit hole of behavioral biases that ultimately end up hurting us in our investment strategies. Yeah. Well, I look forward to finding out whether this little chant also works finding a parking place here in Switzerland. So we'll we'll, you we'll have to go back from that. Yeah, exactly. I've heard you talk about the importance of language and the an environment when it comes to creating new behaviors. And I think we can all agree that the environment in the financial markets have changed dramatically in the past few years. And here, I'm in particular thinking of the level of volatility we've seen in markets and perhaps first and foremost, the lack of volatility in the US stock markets, at least until quite recently. So share with us why is it so important and what are the risks that you see from a change in, in market environment like that? Well, in fact, you bring up a very important point. The volatility of financial markets has become much less predictable than before. So you're right that volatility is quite low relative to historic levels. But I would argue that the volatility of volatility is actually quite high. And mm. that really suggests that we we need to look at another dimension of risk and something that I think very few of us are prepared to do. Part of the reason why volatility of volatility is high is because we now see geopolitical events playing a much more important role in financial markets really ever since the financial crisis. Prior to the crisis, it was rare that you got major central banks involved in the kind of interventions that we see today. But since the financial crisis, it's actually become expected for central banks and governments to start intervening in financial markets directly. So you now have very large players that feel no hesitation to engage in the kind of activities that have direct impact on market dynamics, and therefore volatility can be actually affected to a great degree. It's just over the last few months in terms of current events, when there are concerns about trade wars or threats with various different geopolitical entities because of disagreements and concerns regarding policy, all of those issues now factor into markets in a much more direct way than over the previous 10 years. I completely agree with, with both of you about this alpha, beta, and so on and so forth. But in terms of bigger themes, I'm just curious. I mean, have any of you started seeing what the next big narrative could be going forward, so to speak? I mean, is there any any new things on the horizon that might become sort of the next big talking point? Well, you know, someone once said that history may not repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. And <laughs> I actually think that there's a lot of rhyming going on right now. In other words, I do think that we live in a unique economic environment. And so there are things going on today that really didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago. But the mechanisms by which those various different unique challenges have emerged, they have very much the same impact on financial markets. So one example is this notion of a trade war. We've actually enjoyed a rather long period prior to the most recent time 
where we've engaged in open trade with various partners around the world. And one of the reasons that uh, mega economies like China and India have emerged as real forces in the 20th and now the 21st century is because of, of international trade. So this idea of a trade war, that's actually pretty new. It, obviously, there's been trade wars in many, many, many times in the history of the world. But the difference is today, because of the nature of the way we interact with various different economies, the, the fact that we are engaged in, in trade at the speed of light, if you will, because of the internet and all, all the kinds of connectivity we enjoy across these various different trading regions, uh, the threat of a trade war, the mere threat uh, of a trade war is enough to actually cause businesses to pull back and to change the way that they invest in their infrastructure. So we now have technology enabling all of these various businesses to react much more quickly. And I think that's what we need to worry about. And that's the new kind of perspective on how these old themes are emerging. I want to bring in you, Andrew, again, because 2018 for many investors was a year where they came back and said, well, where was that negative correlation you talked about when looking at managed futures returns, you know, during the crisis or not crisis, I would let's, let's call it the, the event of January, February of 2018. And then we had another kind of event in, in October of 2018. So I think, and I know Katie Kaminsky just recently wrote a paper about, you know, correction versus crisis. So since I have both of you here today, I would love to hear you maybe explain the subtle difference between these two things that actually makes performance in 2018 a little bit more understandable for investors who were seeking or allocating to managed futures and trend followers in order to get some benefit through a year of 2018. But of course, they didn't get it for the most part. So can you explain a little bit about the, maybe start with you again, Andrew, just a little bit about how you see the difference between the crisis where maybe crisis alpha can can play a role, but also the times where it just turns out to be quote unquote a correction and it doesn't really help out. Sure. Well, the idea behind managed futures is that they adapt to these changing trends. And in order for you to be able to identify a trend, you obviously need a period of time where markets are going in a particular direction. When markets are going left and right and left and right, when they become very choppy, that's an environment where trend following is going to underperform. And that's, I think, a very different environment than the kind of crisis alpha that uh, Katie and others have written about. So this past year, I would argue, has been much more of a set of choppy markets where traditional managed futures is going to have difficulty. But there are other investments that ultimately would need to come to bear to provide that kind of return for investors in these markets. But this is part of the problem of political instability. In a period of great political uncertainty, investors are going to have a hard time generating returns. Because the, the way that we generate returns, the way that all investors are able to generate returns, is to put money to work in a productive way. Uh, so whether it's investing in technology or biomedicine uh, or infrastructure, the way that any of us will earn a return for our investors is to be able to allocate capital to productive goods and services. In an environment where there's general political uncertainty, people are going to want to keep their powder dry. 
you, you know, it's like going into a, a, a Las Vegas casino. If you're a card counter and they don't catch you <laughs> because we know that card counting is uh, not permitted in these casinos. But if you go into a casino and you're a card counter and you have expertise, you have an edge, you will definitely be able to earn a better rate of return than a typical gambler who's just going there for fun. So these professional poker players are clearly going to earn a higher rate of return. But imagine going into a casino where you sit at a table and the dealer says, well, we're going to play a game, but I'm not going to really tell you what the game is. And moreover, whatever you think the rules are, along the way, I get to change the rules without telling you when I'm going to do that and why I'm going to do that. How many professional poker players do you think will want to play in that kind of a setting? My, my guess is that very few, and that's what's happening right now. Because of the political uncertainty, a lot of investors are saying, you know, I don't really want to play. I'm going to keep my capital to the side until we see a much clearer direction for the economy. And that process of capital withdrawing from markets and trying to find a home where they understand what the rules are, that's an environment that's very difficult for any investor to be able to generate returns. Yeah, I think this is an example of fear and greed, that overwhelming rational deliberation. I think investors are spooked, and it's going to be a very difficult market in which to be able to identify these kinds of trends until such time as investors start thinking a little bit more rationally. Not to say that emotional reaction is not a reasonable thing to experience, but it is something that's going to be very difficult to try to model uh, unless we actually have really deep data about how sentiment is propagating throughout the marketplace. And there may be some hedge funds out there that are monitoring social media and are able to to make those kinds of predictions. But it, it is something that's going to make market dynamics much more complex over the course of the next few months and perhaps even years. That's it for now. And remember, if you want to listen to the full conversation with Andrew Lowe, please go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash RT18. That's where the conversation starts. And if you enjoyed this short, insightful clip from a past episode of the show, then you're going to love the free book I'm giving away right now. It's called The Many Flavors of Trend Following, and it includes some of my best insights on this, perhaps the most dependable and consistent, yet often overlooked investment strategy. And you can get your free copy if you head over to toptradersonplug.com forward slash book right now to start your own investment journey. Again, just head over to toptradersonplug.com forward slash book and make sure to subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel where I will be back next week with more exciting and engaging conversations. Until next time, take care. <laughs>